Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, featuring today's top directors sharing behind-the-scenes stories of their latest films and insights into the craft of directing. Please take a second to subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Jason Reitman's new drama, The Front Runner, which tells the true story of politician Gary Hart. Senator Hart was considered the front runner for the 1988 Democratic presidential nomination until an extramarital relationship sidelined his campaign. He was forced to drop out of the race as tabloid and political journalism began to merge, a phenomenon that would leave a lasting impact on American politics. In addition to the front runner, Mr. Reitman's credits include the feature films Tully, Men, Women, and Children, Labor Day, Young Adult, and Thank You for Smoking, the pilot for the series Casual, and episodes of the series The Office. Mr. Reitman was nominated for the DGA's Feature Film Award, as well as an Academy Award for his 2009 feature Up in the Air, and garnered an Oscar nomination for directing the 2007 film Juno. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. Reitman spoke with director John Abnett about filming The Front Runner. During their conversation, Mr. Reitman discusses how a film's meaning shifts with the world around it, making a film with no good or bad guys, and how he chose to portray the film's central questions about relevancy and curiosity. So what started you with this? What got you started with it? I'm going to start by saying thank you for being here tonight. John lives in Topanga Canyon, and I begged him all day not to come. And uh, and look, it is an honor any time a director comes to do this screening. You know, as you guys all know, it's director to director, and you hope someone that you really admire will come and do this with you. And so, thank you in general for being here and honoring me by being here. But particularly, thank you for leaving your home when it is a mile away from a wildfire for coming and doing this tonight. I really appreciate it. Um, thank you. Uh, Back to you. Uh, <laughs> so what got you started on it? Right, what got me started was this. You know, uh, I heard, you know, I'll just start this way. I wake up the same way that you do, that everyone else here does. I wake up and I open my phone and I open up the news app and I go, fuck. <laughs> uh, and, and like everyone here, I wonder how the hell we got here. And um, three years ago, uh, I was listening to a Radiolab episode on uh, Gary Hart. And I, I was young enough when this happened that I, I knew the names, but I really did not know the story. And the, the Radiolab episode, which was centered around a book by Matt Bai, laid out the story in a way that kind of boggled my mind. I could not believe that there was this moment in our recent history when the presumed next president of the United States wound up in his alleyway in the middle of the night with these journalists and nobody knew what to do. It sounded so cinematic. It sounded like a, it become kind of a thriller and yet it starts with a, a Western standoff in, in, the, in the setting of a film noir. Uh, and the more, uh, you know, I, was, I read Matt Bai's book and it had all this connective tissue to everything we're talking about today. Uh, gender politics, the line between what is a public life, what is a private life, the relationship between uh, candidates and uh, the press, 
the celebrification of, of running for president, somehow this story kind of touched on all of them. And I immediately reached out to Matt Bai, uh, who wrote the book and uh, had written for a New York Times magazine, had covered five different presidential elections, and he was already working with a guy named Jay Carson. Jay, um, yeah, I know Jay. He's a very good, he's a good writer, and he's got a lot of campaign experience. Yeah, he Clinton, was the press yeah. secretary for Hillary Clinton in '08, and he was the press secretary for Howard Dean and Tom Daschle, and wrote on House of Cards, and is actually uh, um, uh, the the person for which Chris Pine's character in sorry Ryan Gosling's character in Ides of March was based on. Mm -hmm. And the three of us decided to write this screenplay together. And did, I mean, was the film The Candidate something that was on your mind at all? Yes, it does. Uh, that was, uh, uh, the first thing I did was I invited the two of them over to the house and I said, let's, I want to I want to watch a movie together. And I put on The Candidate, I'm a big Michael Ritchie fan, which you know. And, uh, and as we watched, they just, it just kind of sparked with both of them with the journalist side of Matt Bai, with uh, the political uh, side of Jay Carson, and they said, oh, this is, this is how it is. And I said, I know, and that's how, the kind of movie we should make. A movie with no good guys, no bad guys, just people. People trying to do the right thing in the midst of a scandal. Uh, and we, we went about trying to write a screenplay that was not about a man, but was actually rather about a moment. And it was a movie, and you know, we tried to write a movie with 20 main characters, uh, all centered around this scandal, trying to figure out the right thing to do as the ground was shifting. And the ground was shifting. And for, for me, first of all, I'm going to be a little coy here for a second. I love the movie. <laughs> I just think it was uh, an incredible accomplishment uh, and on a number of levels, but one of them was just the moment in time, as you say. The other was your the tone, the shifting between humor and, and drama. And it was really just an incredibly uh, nuanced uh, delivery of the narrative. And, uh, you know, it started when I was watching, when I looked at that first shot, I went, whoa, <laughs> where did that come from? So wh where did that come from? I, I'll tell you, uh, because I'm not a fan of cool shots. Uh, my, I'm really not. It's a not. cool shot. My, well, my cinematographer Eric Stilberg and I have known each other since we were te teenagers, and we've kind of had a long-standing rule with each other about cool shots, mm -hmm. and that is, if one of us starts to set up a cool shot, the other one comes up behind the other shoulder and goes, "That's a cool shot." <laughs> is that for the real? Huh? That's a real cool shot. Hey, Tarantino, like, and uh, and we'll kind of screw with each other because uh, we kind of feel like it's our job to take our hands off the camera, and and yet. In this movie, we, were, we set out to ask a philosophical question, right? What is relevant? That's the, that's the question of the movie, and that is the question that we are asking ourselves every day right now. And, and that's what's so great about the kind of the litmus test of the Gary Hart scandal. It asks this question of what is important versus what is entertaining. And there's no answer for that, but it kind of serves as a great question. Well, I think it is a great question, and I think it's a question that has very, very deep roots and obviously is quite relevant today, uh, which is one, truth, journalism, relevancy of truth, and the big lie, mm -hmm. and the meaning of big lie. And we, when I say we, this is a very bad generalization, but our country looks at our story as the truth. 
and we don't think of what we say and what we teach as propaganda. We look at other people and say, well, that's propaganda. In this case here, you've got an issue of truth, and you've got an issue of journalistic ethics, and all of a sudden, things start to get very, very dicey. And it was the first time that I'm aware of uh, in an election where something like that happened. So it, it, you, you, ju you just chose it, and when did you choose it? What year did you start working on this? Well, it was, we started three years ago. I'll finish up just on that opening shot, because uh, I think it plays into just what you just said, is we wanted to ask the question, that philosophical question, cinematically. And that was the moment we decided, and it started in writing, actually, there will always be three things happening in this movie at the same time. We want to, if, you, if we're forcing the, the audience to, to, make a, to make a decision, it's gonna begin with, there's three conversations happening at once, always. What do you actually want to listen to? There's three things visually happening. What do you want to look at? You pull out of a van. We pull out of a van because it's, you know, it is near the birth of the satellite truck, which uh, uh, represents the beginning of the 24-hour news cycle. You're looking at three different things on three different screens. You're hearing the, where's the beef quote? The two people in the van are having an argument. You're already hearing the reporter doing a stand-up on the left. And by the time you see him, you're hearing two other guys have this innocuous conversation about a golf cart on the right. And, and we do that through the entire movie all the way into the end to the closing shot where on one side of the frame you have a television and it is playing the closing speech of Gary Hart's career. It's kind of the best speech he ever made. It's kind of there's a sad irony that is the last speech he ever made as a politician. And on the other side of the frame is a marriage, a marriage hanging on for dear life, a husband and a wife trying to figure their way out through this. And uh, all the way to the last moment I'm you know, asking the audience, what do you want to look at? Uh, where, where does your curiosity go? What is important? What is entertaining? Well, that's, that was what interested me in the first shot, which yeah. is just a constant reveal in the narrative and the fact that it kept going on and on and on. And in many ways, that is what news is. <laughs> yeah. It never stops. Uh, so I thought, you know, it was narrative as opposed to just cool. It was, and, right. and in some ways, I think one of the challenges, I don't know if you feel this as a filmmaker, is that opening image or images right. in many ways should embody the entire movie. Right. And I felt that Thank without you. knowing what it was the first time I saw it, I went, wow. Second time I went, wow, again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so going back to the timing of this, when did you start this and what were you thinking when you started it and how has that changed? Well, we started writing this during the Obama administration. And we thought it was relevant then. And, and we thought, won't this be ironic? Hillary will become the president. People will think about what might have just happened. Yeah. Um, and of course, the world has been shifting every week. And, and you know, as you guys all know, that's that's what's kind of fascinating and confounding simultaneously about making films, is that a film is not a static thing, it changes with the world around it. Uh, because it is a relationship between the screen and the viewer, and this film has changed many times in the last three weeks. It changed during the Kavanaugh hearings. Right. It changed uh, uh, during the midterms. It changed when Jim Acosta got his press credentials uh, taken away. So, um, uh, so, you kind of have to know that, and uh, we, tr you know, we tried to make something with so many points of view that that different audience members would kind of hook in with different characters and find their way in. I, I find I talk to people, and 
as many people watch this movie through Gary and Lee as they do through Donna Rice or as they do through A.J. Parker, you know, the young journalist at the Post, or uh, Molly Ephraim, the young uh, campaigner who, you know, was tasked with bringing Donna Rice home. Uh, and there's kind of different routes in that hopefully allow the opportunity to for the move to kind of grow and evolve as, uh, as politics change. So... And by the way, that's, again, part of what I just found so uh, satisfying, that, that Molly's character and the woman-to-woman yeah. -woman speak in, at that time period and the awkwardness of it and the impossibility of the job. And it, it generated a tremendous amount of pathos, I thought. There's no win there. I and mean, she's looking to Gary Hart for an answer. Right. You know, and he was pretty inspirational and very idealistic and a lot of his thoughts seem incredibly relevant today. Uh, you know, but from her eyes, when she was looking, it was nothing but disappointment at that point, right? Yeah, and look, I, that's why, you know, I said this uh, earlier, and it is one of the kind of the keys for us was um, there's going to be no such thing as nobility in this movie. This is not about heroes and villains. This is about complicated people, mm -hmm. flawed people, people who have made mistakes. Uh, particularly one man who, uh, look, was very presidential and had big ideas and was prescient beyond all imagination. I mean, there's a guy, and we've talked about this before, but you know, there's a guy in the 80s who was saying that uh, in the mid-80s, Gary Hart said, our addiction to oil is going to take us into the Middle East where we're going to encounter Islamic terrorism and not know how to fight it because we have a military that only knows how to bomb people. Um, he said in the early 80s, he, he went to visit Steve Jobs in the garage in the early 80s, came back to the Senate and said, uh, we, need a, we need a computer in every classroom because in the future the difference in the economy will be whether or not you know how to use a computer. Um, uh, he's kind of always known what was coming around every corner and yet for whatever reason could not see right in front of his face that the world was changing and there was a genuine interest in who he was as a person. The uh, I don't know if I ever mentioned this to you, but my uh, hobby, uh, slightly due to insomnia, is reading presidential bios. Yeah, we talked about this. Yeah. Right. So I have read all the presidents in chronological order, and I I have this question that I can't seem to resolve, and I asked many many very knowledgeable people, and I think maybe your film is a, a good example of it. Is how do you judge a president or a presidential candidate? Is it on their character, or is it on their ability to get important legislation through Congress? Oh, I mean, this is this is the big question, right? Yeah. I mean, some people go, "Do you care about your pilot's marriage, or do you just care that they can land the plane?" You know, there's that version. Um, but then you really have to ask uh, if someone is a womanizer, and I'm not saying that he is. Uh, but if someone is, yeah, what does that say about how they see women? Um, it's a complicated question. It's a hard one to talk about in 2018 because our president is so completely indecent, and the and and the and the volume. I mean, and that's no matter what your politics are. I mean, that's just who he is. Um, and our our the volume of the conversation right now is at a 12. You go into Twitter and. It's like your head's going to get ripped off if you say the wrong word. You have either kind of party kind of cannibalizing themselves. Um, so the hope was that going back in time, that by going through the prism of 1987, we could kind of bring the volume from a 12 down to a 6. And 
use the movie as a conversation starter. I mean, that's what our hope is. Uh, you know, there's no message to the movie. The, the, you know, the hope is that you walk out of the movie and have an opportunity to have exactly that conversation. And, and one of the conversations that's been started has been among journalists, correct? Yeah. In terms of how they look at the film. Yeah. I, look, I, there is a sensitivity. Um, and I'm, I'm deeply aware of what is happening to journalists right now. This movie was co-written by Matt Bai, who... As I said, wrote for New York Times Magazine for years. He continues to be uh, a political journalist. You know, writes for uh, Yahoo now as a columnist. Um, and I am completely sensitive to how they are being dishonored by our president and and how they're getting the crap beaten out of them on a daily basis. Uh, I, I suppose with this film, I'm not trying to shine a light on journalism as much as our own curiosity. Like. I, so you wake up in the morning and you do the thing, right? You pull out the phone, you look at the news. What I find is, more often than not, there is a story about the midterms, and then right next to it, there's a story on Ariana Grande and Pete Davidson breaking up. <laughs> and they are both from the Washington Post, and they are both labeled analysis, and they are both given equal weight. And that's confusing. Particularly for me, because I want to click on the damn Ariana Grande article, and I'm I'm sitting there kind of wondering about my own curiosity, and how does that play into the way that I view the news? Am I viewing the news through, you know, Ariana Grande, or am I viewing Pete Davidson through the terms of political reporting? Uh, and that's confusing. So I, what I like about the film uh, or the story, and what interests me about it is the ability kind of to self-reflect on my own curiosities, um, and, uh, yeah. But, you know, you, you have, uh, I mean, I, I have some familiarity with this from spending a little time researching when I was doing a movie about journalism, mm -hmm. a very, very different movie, uh, up close and personal. And, uh, you know, it's a kind of trashy, trashy paper, right, that uh, ultimately topples this president, correct? I mean, the Herald's a real paper. I mean, they're not... Uh, no, I'm not saying now. Um, I'm, I'm going back then. It would not be regarded in the, in the, in the way that Washington Post or New York Times... I mean, I don't do. think they were the Post. I don't think they were the Times. And I think I think they had a tricky decision to make. I think I, I mentioned this uh, the one time we talked about this. Something I did not know going into this film, because I am not a student of history as much as you are, um, I didn't realize that the primary system started in the 1970s. <laughs> I presumed the primary system had been around 100 years. Uh, the idea that the primaries really started in the 70s, that prior to the mid-70s, candidates were chosen by party bosses at conventions. Yeah, and that starting in the 70s, that power was put into our hands, and all of a sudden, we had to know who the hell a mayor from some city was, and a congressman from some state, and a governor from another state, and that responsibility fell on the shoulders of journalists. Of course, once you ask the question... Uh, uh, who are these people? The next question, of course, is, uh, what do you want to know? And that is what forces this guy from the Miami Herald, uh, Tom Fiedler, to follow Donna Rice to Gary Hart's house. I'm not sure if he made the right uh, decision. I I'm not even sure if I'd want to weigh in on that. But I'm just as interested in that decision as I am in uh, A.J. Parker uh, uh, from The Post. Uh, decision to ask about adultery eventually. 
Um, I thought that was great. Well, look, I mean, the that line, so we have a line uh, that Ben Bradley says in the film uh, where he talks about what are we supposed to do if TV news starts covering it and other newspapers start covering it and everyone's talking about it, how do we not cover it? And that's a real, Ben, ben Bradley said that to David Frost a couple years after this in referring to this story specifically. And, uh, and I feel that dilemma even more today because we are clicking and telling them exactly what stories we want to hear and taking that editorial choice away from them. Uh, well, which is, it, it's very interesting given the, uh, the notion of false news, mm. you know, of fake news, uh, which to me, and I'm not a, a, an expert on this, you know, its roots are Goebbels. Uh, and, and, and his notion was the big lie and just repeat it over and over again yeah, yeah, yeah. until it becomes the truth, which sounds terrifyingly familiar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, you know, that is different than all the news that's fit to print. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's different than Woodward Bernstein, and it's different than AJ asking a very, very tough question mm -hmm. to someone who he actually admired and liked. Right. And wanted to know and believed his readership wanted to know, and they did. Uh, and it was a very, uh, very powerful moment. Uh, again, just beautifully realized the timing, the way you take your time and allow moments to breathe like that. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a subjective feel, but for me, it's just, uh, it's, it's a very, very mature storytelling hand. That's very uh, kind of you. I, I, if, I, we could talk about filmmaking as well, not only politics, right? Uh, I, um, I, I, could t I in, in reference to that scene, because I think it actually kind of speaks to a couple things I was really excited about. Um, we carried the same background actors for the whole film. Oh, really? We cast our background actors in prep alongside uh, casting everyone with uh, dialogue. We wardrobed them. We, through prep, we told them, you're going to be a sound man. You're going to be a photographer. You're going to be a videographer. Here is your equipment. This is how your equipment works. On the day of shooting... Today you're on a plane. Here is a supercut of footage of reporters on planes in the 80s. Today we're in a press conference. Here is a supercut of footage of reporters in the 80s uh, in press conferences. And they stayed with us and they became kind of part of the living organism of the shoot. So by the time we get to a press conference like that, um, they've all been with us as though they've been on a political campaign for the last month or two. And Hugh knew I mean, Hugh did more research than I've ever experienced anyone doing uh, on any movie I've made. Uh, he knew speeches that were not in the film. He knew talking points that were not in the script. He, for the first day of shooting, I did the worst thing as a director could do. I, uh, we started with a Bob Dole debate that had to play in the background on TV. He did 10 pages of debate on the MX missile. Uh, and he's from Australia. He's not even American. Um, and... And when we got to that press conference, we put an X on the ground, and I said, just go out to the X and start taking questions. Well, I thought he was just fantastic, and uh, you bring out a couple of your favorites there. He's my ninth movie with J.K. He's not bad. Uh, my, the new rule now is when a script comes in, it's, it's, yeah, but what would J.K. Simmons play? <laughs> what was the line he said to uh, the campaign aide? Buck up? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a heartbreaking line. I, the line I always think of of JK's in this one is, uh, I don't give a f because I remember writing that line and just already know, oh yeah, that's gonna, that's gonna sing pure. That's, uh, that, that's in his key. Uh, 
we're going we're going back to uh, because we, I know we could go on for a long time, but filmmaking and uh, and music. The music was again the choice of music was just beautiful, and uh, maybe talk about that. Uh, so the the music is composed by Rob Simonson. It's my second film with him. You know, we also just did Tully together, and. Uh, we did something interesting on this. I had never done this before, and, and you know, uh, Rob is a kind of Rob comes from a piano background. He's a brilliant pianist, and uh, this is the first time where we would go into recording sessions with him and percussionists, and they were just trying ideas out, literally pulling out different pieces of metal and, and hammering them with different mallets, and and finding the sound in real time. It was very exciting because it actually kind of mirrored the wild, messy style of the filmmaking that we were doing. Uh, we we found that the Brubeck piece on Square Dance on the opening shot kind of brought the movie to life. There was a, we, we put that song on it. It was like, okay, that's the sound of the movie. And as soon as we identified that, it was piano, drums, hand claps. Yeah, the, the, hand claps. the hand claps were the thing that I really thought were so well, cause cool. Because they're messy. They're messy and they're human and they're real. And, and they're also applause. <laughs> I, you know what? I did not think of that till now. I mean, it just it it worked musically, but just when I was thinking about it, I thought, oh, that's kind of interesting. Yeah. And how the, the genesis of that. So, did you rehearse on, on this? I don't rehearse. You don't rehearse. Uh, I, I, I've always felt like I understand why they rehearse in theater, and look, everyone has their own technique, but I choose my actors for a reason. I think uh, you know the letter, the note I send to actors the night before they start shooting is. Don't worry, you already know how to do this, <laughs> and uh, and I and I believe in that, and I believe in my own ability, and I believe in their ability, and I believe that it's going to take four takes, five takes, six takes. We're going to get there, and when it happens, I want it to be on camera. Uh, there's no there's no point in nailing something in rehearsal. Who cares? Uh, the whole point of movies is the electricity of that one time, the moment, and like as you know, you get to that place where you know. They're best on take two. They're best on take five. Like you just kind of start to know, and it's about the electricity of chemistry. I mean, that's more than anything. Like why I make movies. I love actor. I love dialogue. I love actors. I love watching chemistry between people. I love that moment where it just happens or something surprises you. And uh, for me, rehearsal is kind of the the antithesis of that. Vera. Ah. I mean, that scene, it, I kept thinking the first time I saw it about, uh, what's it, Beatrice Strait in Network with William Holden. Oh, that you know, scene it, is... It, you know, it was pretty well written. That's the Chayefsky. best breakup scene yeah. in the history of cinema. But this, in its own way, was more understated, but had the same level of emotion. I, I am so honored that you brought that up. I love, love, love that scene. I'm friends with Jenny Lumet, Sydney's daughter and I remember uh, you know we're both the kids of directors and every once in a while we'll bring up each other's parents and I'm, and I remember I, that was the once I was like oh that scene in network uh, it's a killer it's an absolute killer um, and what I love about that scene is neither actor is judging their character in network and that's and you and, and in and in divorce scenes in split up scenes in cheating scenes and reveal in those kinds of scenes it's always tears and screaming and it's shrill and it's melting and there's never the just the nuance of real life and people talking about the hardest things that we ever go through um and the moment you get caught is the scariest moment of your life i think it's worse than having a gun pulled on you and 
Uh, not that I've ever been caught. And, um, and what I love about Vera is, and it's interesting, because in Up in the Air in this film, she plays both sides of an affair. And she approaches everything with humanity, with nuance, never judging her characters, and has the fierceness to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Hugh. Um, I mean, she can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Wolverine. <laughs> it's the air between the words. Mm, yes. I'm being told to wrap this up, so uh, is there anything that you would have a question about or want to clarify about the film? Uh, I'll say two things that uh, audiences usually ask, and then I'm going to run to the airport. Um, people always ask where the photo is. Yeah, you know, you, how many do you know what I'm talking about? The photo of Gary Hart Donner Rice. Um, there are many misconceptions about the Gary Hart story. Uh, the first one is that he told reporters to follow him around, and after that he did. We clarify that in this film. Uh, the follow me around quote came out the same day as the Herald piece. They were already following him around. This was a story created by uh, television news. They said uh, they equated the two, and after the fact, that became the narrative. And there is this photograph, a photograph that it is presumed to have taken down his, uh, his career. The truth is he left politics, and over a month later, the National Enquirer bought the photo and put it out into the world. But it is the photo we remember, and it actually kind of gets back to the first thing I was talking about, which is what is entertaining versus what is truly relevant. And we have a tendency to remember the joke, the name of a boat. What is kind of most curious and entertaining about the story, this photograph, this horrible photograph, uh, which actually did not kind of counter into any of them. Uh, the other thing I get asked is whether they've seen the film. Uh, first person we showed the film to was Donna Rice. After that, to Gary and Lee Hart, their children, uh, the campaign staff, Tom Fiedler from the Herald. Um, the first thing that any one of them always says is, Hugh Jackman is such a good actor. Uh, genuinely, that is what they always say, and it always is a reminder that, oh, that's right, they just watched a movie. Um, uh, the first thing that Gary Hart said after that was, do I really talk like that? And his wife, Lee, said, yes, darling, that's exactly how you speak. Um, they all have different thoughts on what happened. Obviously, this is one of the, any event is seen through different points of view. This is an event where they all have different kind of points of view and details. Um, but the overwhelming feeling amongst all of them, uh, from Donna Rice to Tom Fiedler, is that the actors approach them with empathy and with sensitivity, and that's something that they've not had for 30 years in this story, a story that's been kind of largely kind of rounded up as kind of a joke. Um, and that meant a lot to me, uh, because uh, this was the first time I ever made a movie about real people, real people who would eventually see the movie. Um, and I got to know them before we started shooting the film, because uh, I reached out to all of them before. And then they, uh, uh, I traveled around the country kind of bringing them the movie to show uh, show them. One last thing. Yeah. From the time the article came out to when Gary resigned, how long did that take? It was less than a week. Um, yeah, it's it's kind of fascinating how fast it went, particularly then. I mean, it's not even in the internet era, uh, and it happened very quickly. Uh, and uh, I, I go into. I'm sure you're the same. I go into every movie with questions. I'm trying to answer questions. It's like why we do this. We're trying to figure shit out. Uh, 
And I came out of this movie with more questions. I just, I just don't know. But the process uh, was... You, you came lovely. out with a fine film, Jason. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, you can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll have a lot more for you in the coming weeks as awards season approaches, including Q&As from Peter Forelli, Feta Alvarez, and Susie Unessi. So be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow cinephiles find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.